Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing China's approach to the developing world. We're going to talk about why China seeks to expand its influence in the developing world. We're also going to discuss the strategies Beijing uses when engaging with developing countries and whether the various development initiatives led by China will produce substantive results politically and economically in the years to come. To help us unpack these issues, we are talking with Dr. Joshua Eisenman, who's an assistant professor of public policy in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. His research focuses on Chinese politics and foreign relations with the United States and the developing world. Dr. Eisenman, Josh, thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be here, Bonnie. Thank you for having me. China has a very long history of engaging with the developing world or the third world uh, that, of course, can be traced back to even before its own economic modernization really took off in 1979, 1980. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of the history of China's relationship with the third world? Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned the term third world because I think that that's a really important way to begin the discussion. So China and the Soviet Union began as allies, as most people know, um, through most of the 50s. Um, And there was this idea that there was a socialist world and a kind of imperialist or capitalist world, or what we in the West would call a free world. And there was this, what was called the two-world theory. Well, after the Sino-Soviet split, um, Mao Zedong decided that uh, China was actually not part of the Soviet camp. It was the leader of a third group called the third world or the developing world. And so China, uh, under Mao, portrayed itself as the leader of the developing countries of the world, Um, that it, too, had suffered under the rapacious uh, colonialism and imperialism of the West. It was trying to emerge uh, uh, through development um, and political independence, and that it would set an example for developing countries and support them in their own quest for independence, both economically and politically. And so the the origination of uh, this really begins with Mao's desire to chart an independent Chinese foreign policy and to side with the developing countries of the world uh, in that process. And of course, that's part of the narrative of communism more generally, siding with the weak over the powerful. China's engagement with the developing world um, has really expanded um, exponentially, uh, especially in places like Africa. We've seen increased investment and uh, infrastructure projects, etc. So what are the main drivers of, of China's policy towards the developing world? What are its motivations? And, and do they differ from region to region, or do you see uniformity? Well, this, uh, this is an excellent question for a variety of reasons. Um, I would say we must begin by recognizing that the people who make the policy of China are the Communist Party of China, and the Communist Party of China is a political organization. So I think that the problem many people have made is they mistake the means for the ends. They see a lot of economics going on, and they think, well, to get rich is glorious. China wants to get rich. I understand. But in reality, I would argue that the economics is only a means to a political end, and that political end is legitimizing the Communist Party of China's control over China um, and and, and any other region it would claim under its purview. Um, So I would say that the economic means 
are to achieve this important political ends. And this actually references back to the Mao era as well, because many of the things Mao was trying to do was trying to legitimize the ideology of the party um, and the rule of the party. Um, and so in a lot of ways, we see uh, shadows of that today, the desire to legitimize uh, the ideology and the ruling system of China. I would say that's the number one uh, objective of the party, uh, and in this case, in the developing world. You also asked about whether these uh, strategies differ um, from uh, different region to region. And in the book that Eric Higginbotham and I uh, are about to publish, an edited volume uh, called China Steps Out, we looked at a region-by-region basis. We, had, we worked with different co-authors who are regional experts. We looked on a region-by-region basis and asked just that very question. And in fact, we found quite a bit of similarity um, across regions. Um, when we implemented our approach um, called the Structured Focused Comparison Approach, uh, we sought to do these kinds of comparisons. And, you know, what's interesting is that at the end, when we pulled all the information together, we saw similar trends. Uh, you know, we saw economic uh, methods, trade, investment, loans, financing, one belt, one road. We saw political methods, what we would call MOU diplomacy, host diplomacy, party-to-party outreach, cadre training, etc. We saw military engagement, military diplomacy, peacekeeping, arms sales, um, and we saw soft power, linkages with students and media, united front tactics, which are all over the media these days. Um, and so we saw that these means, economic, political, military, soft power, existed in every region of the developing world and with nearly every country that China engages with. It's just a question of the mix that China decides to apply in that particular country uh, in terms of trying to achieve its objectives. So after China determines its objectives, it looks at its toolbox and decides which tools can possibly be the most effective in achieving those ends within that particular country or region. That sounds like a very comprehensive approach and very well planned and very top-down. So how does China's approach to dealing with the developing world then differ from the way the United States and other developed countries deal with third world countries. Former Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, Liafei, gave a speech, uh, I think it was about a year and a half ago now, and he talked about these interlocking relations that China has. And so, um, of course, uh, uh, you know, a strategy which is a packaged approach like the one I described has to have some kind of central uh, government in charge of it. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the strategy is implemented perfectly at all times. Um, you know, nothing's perfect, um, even the Communist Party of China. So it's not implemented perfectly. But we certainly see these interlocking linkages. And I would say that in the book, we identify, um, I would say, generally three types. The first are regional linkages. And we can see this through, say, the China-Africa a cooperation forum. We see the China-Arab cooperation forum. We see the China-Latin America cooperation forum. We see uh, a variety, China, uh, Middle East, and Arab countries forum, right? So we see numerous of these regional fora where China is uh, basically underscoring the asymmetry of the relationship by pitting itself against an entire region. And these uh, forum, uh, fora, which uh, exchange uh, uh, hosting, so uh, you know, one year it'll be hosted in China, the next it'll be hosted in a regional country. And so this means that China's agenda-setting power is very, power, is very strong. 
Um, every other conference, it is the one setting the agenda. Whereas in the region, there may be numerous regional tensions which may not permit a unified strategy towards China. However, there is almost certainly a unified regional strategy because there's a unified regional forum that would facilitate the development of such a strategy. Um, we also see plenty of bilateral linkages. In fact, China's relations uh, are, are very powerful on the bilateral level because really no nation in the world except the United States um, is on the, a power par with China economically and militarily. So by definition, these are asymmetric relations, but they're even more asymmetric in the developing world where these countries' power differential is so uh, extreme, uh, as is population size and uh, resources, just so many differences which put these countries in a bilateral case, it puts them in a very disadvantageous position despite the rhetoric of equality and brotherhood. And then I would say the third part is the global level, where China is working uh, sometimes to advocate the interests of, of certain countries that it uh, favors at the global level, and also to push what it calls the democratization of international relations, which essentially means um, building a more multipolar world where more voices are present in the discussion. And, you know, that certainly serves China's interests, um, as many have called it a quote-unquote rising power, but it also serves the interests of developing countries who would like to hear their own voice uh, a little bit more in these institutions. So when you have these kind of three interlocking and overlapping uh, linkages, it provides a very strong basis of support to then uh, project forward the economic, political, military, and soft power modalities that I discussed earlier. In 2013, China's President Xi Jinping launched the Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, this is, of course, included uh, a growing number of countries. There's about $1 trillion that uh, is going to be put towards building infrastructure and promoting uh, connectivity, uh, not just, of course, um, on China's periphery, but extending outward towards Europe and even developing world. How does this Belt and Road Initiative um, influence or alter the way that China is engaging with uh, countries in the third world? Well, again, I mean, I would say this is this speaks directly to the packaged strategy that China is putting forward. And, and in many ways, the One Belt, One Road Initiative almost codifies, or maybe it does codify that strategy. And I think those folks for a long time had said that there is no such package strategy. To me, the One Belt, One Road uh, initiative, or BRI, Belt and Road, as, as the new nomenclature is, really belies that argument. So it, it really underscores that this is a, a plan. This is a strategy. And it's a strategy with objectives. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it also means that the scale, as you mentioned, $1 trillion, is well beyond anything that we've ever really talked about before. And so when you do this level of lending, and it's essentially connected lending because you're lending to people um, based uh, largely on their political usefulness to you. Um, and there's a, I've been talking to folks, and there's been development of a kind of um, a willingness to determine based on political affinity how much debt China's willing to let you have. So Pakistan, for instance, is able to have far more debt on its books from China than other countries, not because it's economically more viable than those countries, 
um, as we might think when you're dealing in economic transactions, but because it's politically more important to China and it has a closer relationship. And so this close connection between politics and economics, politics and lending in the past has been disastrous. When you lend money to your brother because he's your brother, not because he has a good business plan, that often does not really, you know, historically lead to payback. So there are questions out there um, that are being asked, and we see uh, about whether or not these countries are going to be able to pay China back and what China might do. And just the other day, in fact, I think it was yesterday, we had a little bit of a glimpse about what China might do if it doesn't get paid back. Because in Venezuela, the state-owned oil company was sued by China's state-owned oil company, Sinopec. Now, what's interesting about the lawsuit is it actually took place in Houston, Texas, in a U.S. court. And I think that says quite a lot about the rule of law in the United States. However, the fact that the lawsuit was settled yesterday for upwards of $20 million also suggests that those countries that might believe that they're going to be able to write these loans off, um, that this loan forgiveness that they might have experienced in the past under much less onerous uh, loans is going to be repeated. I think this incident, you know, not incident, this um, development of uh, uh, lawsuits in U.S. courts against developing countries suggests that they should rethink that calculation and how much debt they're really willing to take on. Can you explain, perhaps, for our listeners, what is the difference between the way the Chinese lend money uh, to entities in the developing world and how uh, countries like the U.S. or um, other OECD countries lend money? What's, what, are, are there different criteria? Um, why, why is there such a difference? Well, you know, I think this is a very important distinction to draw. First, I would say that the U.S. doesn't lend money anymore. Uh, we did, and it got us into a lot of problems. We didn't get paid back. We had to, you know, go to the IMF. But we, we had to uh, do debt forgiveness um, by indebting, especially African countries. We really got ourselves into a pro- political dilemma. Um, so we stopped doing it. Um, America gives grants, generally speaking, at least to African countries. Um, but China gives mostly loans. And, you know, to be frank, these loans are at the uh, conciliatory rates, so their interest rates are low on the loan, but they still need to be paid back, and they still need to be paid back with interest. So essentially, the process works like this. A Chinese company, or in collaboration with a particular government or country, will put together a proposal for funding, usually from the China Development Bank, or the China XM Bank, or another uh, Chinese state-run policy institution. After the money is allocated, it will be allocated to the Chinese state-run firm. The Chinese state-run firm will then deploy its resources onto the ground to build the project in question. When it comes to payback time, the country can either pay back in cash. Cash is always welcome. However, if they can't pay back in cash, they can pay back in kind. So we've seen countries like, say, Venezuela and Angola paying back in oil shipments. And I suppose that's fine when oil prices are high, if that's the assumptions that those loan terms are based on. But when oil prices fell, we can see the problems that places like Venezuela and Angola faced. They needed to reevaluate their loans, and that became somewhat problematic. Um, in other places where they don't have such resources, places like, say, Sri Lanka, when they had to pay back and they don't have the money, now, China has come and taken equity stakes in the investment itself. And so there's a, it's a different process, 
um, because it's uh, behind closed doors, um, because it's almost entirely controlled by the Chinese side, and because those funds, they really do have to go only to Chinese state-run firms. Um, and then there are questions on the ground often about how much skills transfer is going on um, in the implementation of these projects. So the, the process itself uh, is a kind of a, a loan-based uh, process, uh, and, and you know, at the end of the day, um, it's questionable how much resources get onto the ground in these countries. When the Chinese talk about their uh, relations, the lending, the projects um, that they're engaged in, in in these countries, they always describe them as win-win. That sounds pretty benign. You know, most people would think that means that both sides benefit from uh, the lending and the, and, and the project, whatever it may be. Uh, but maybe you can help dissect the meaning of win-win from the Chinese perspective. What do they really mean in this context? I mean, I think that this is in part a rhetorical device. So um, I can do my best to interpret it, but I, I, but I don't want to over-interpret it. Because I think that um, when you use rhetorical devices like win-win, which actually, you know, it's funny, win-win, you know, my experience, that kind of has a business. Uh, almost a kind of, uh, it's very American, I, it just to the ears. When I first heard it out of the kind of Chinese propaganda machine, I was almost surprised to hear the phrase. Um, but getting to your point, what does it mean? Well, you know, as you probably know, Bonnie, when you walk into the Communist Party of China's International Department, it's written on, on the wall, right? So it's, it's become quite uh, an important tool. And I suppose what it suggests is that when you do business with us, we're not going to take advantage of you. Uh, colonialism, uh, imperialism is not win-win. It's I exploit you or you exploit me. Um, it's a zero-sum game, exploitative relationship. Um, and so I think that the point of using win-win is to juxtapose it with these uh, previous uh, incarnations of imperialism and colonialism and to say we are not like that. We are. We actually want you to win too, that this has to be a mutually beneficial relationship. Of course, the question then becomes, well, who in that country, or in China for that matter, is winning? Um, and there's been a lot of questions about whether or not the ruling party of a particular country may win from striking a deal, but do the people of that country actually benefit? Um, and so when you, when you put forward such a, um, a formulation as win-win, it's almost natural that people mm -hmm. will say, well, who? Who's going to be the winner? Am I the winner? Um, but I think that often what they mean is, uh, in order to facilitate the discussion, uh, the MOU discussions or wh whatever the particular discussions that are going on, to do so in an atmosphere of mutual support and encouragement. So it's kind of an atmospheric, in a way, uh, way to let the other side know that at least the Chinese side is intentionally not trying to exploit them, or at least to project that image. Um, and then, of course, you can ask whether or not it's true, but that's a kind of different set of questions. In addition to the economic development projects, uh, it seems that one of China's goals has been to expand what they call cultural soft power throughout the developing world. So what are the specific strategies that China has adopted in order to promote uh, its soft power, and uh, to what extent have they been successful? 
Well, as you know, Bonnie, and many of the listeners do as well, the term soft power is somewhat complicated. Um, it has tended to refer to the strength of, uh, of a society, um, things like uh, the NBA or hip-hop music or um, you know, soccer uh, coming out of Italy or, or Britain, um, the Manchester United jerseys that you'll see when you're in a place like South Africa, these kinds of things. And, you know, the, the Queen of England no more created Manchester United than the President of the United States created uh, hip-hop music, right? So these are things that have sprung organically from the people of these cultures, and they're attractive around the world. Um, and they've created multi-million, billion-dollar empires uh, for hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Um, but on the Chinese side, I, would, I wouldn't use the word soft power, although the, the Chinese leadership likes to use it. I would use the word soft influence or some other kind of term which distinguishes what they're doing, which is outward-facing propaganda. Um, and there's a difference between propaganda and the kind of natural outgrowth of a society. So what China is doing is things like media training, media training being run by the Xinhua official news agency or the CCTV um, to project and, and do what Xi Jinping said, tell a good Chinese story, um, to try to alter the perception of China and its political system in the views of foreigners. Um, this is a very much connected to the United Front Work Department, United Front Tactics, which go back to Lenin and were, in my opinion, perfected by Mao Zedong. So this concept that one is going to influence the way foreigners perceive of China, its political system and its rulers, is kind of deeply embedded into the party. And the idea that you would do this, not in a kind of ham-fisted Russian way by trying to buy a bunch of, uh, you know, websites, I guess, content, such that you would be immediately discovered. Um, but the Chinese uh, way is, I would say, more subtle. It's more about changing the environment um, slowly and gradually into one which is more preferable to the party and to the promotion of the image they'd like to put forward. The ideal soft influence from a Chinese perspective is one that you never know was there in the first place. It's the fact that you like China better and you don't even necessarily know why you did. And so a lot of the soft influence going on, whether it be at U.S. universities, um, uh, not necessarily U.S. universities in Australia and other countries with regard to funding, you know, different academic units, um, whether it be in terms of gaining some type of access in terms of U.S. firms or, or, or technology um, or influence over media, others. Um, this is all part of a, a propaganda influence campaign um, that's underway uh, around the world, and the developing world is merely one of many battlefields um, that the influence campaign is being waged on. But it's a particularly important one because of the use of many of these developing countries, particularly on the African continent. Um, you know, there's a, just a, a large, youthful population. And so the, the idea from the Chinese side is that if the West can brainwash them to believe that liberalism is to the good, then we can certainly undo that and let them understand that there are m several different systems of government, none better than the other, and ours is equally as good as any other. Um, so I would say that, you know, generally speaking, it's important to make these distinctions between an organic development of soft power and the promotion of a particular policy agenda from a government. I think it's fair to say that um, 
the United States and other countries, and of course through the uh, the World Bank and IMF, have tried to promote economic development in many parts of the third world, and their performance has been mixed. Um, and I, many Chinese point to the lack of success uh, what in some of these instances and, and say that they will do a better job, that their approach is going to be more effective in actually promoting development in the third world. So what do you think? Do you think that the way that China approaches development is going to be beneficial to these uh, countries? Or are you more concerned about downsides such as creating uh, debt that can't be paid or projects that perhaps aren't high quality um, or other downsides of, uh, of Chinese involvement? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I don't want to do is, is go ahead and defend uh, the existing regime of, uh, I guess, trying to develop these countries. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on that, and um, certainly I wouldn't want to uh, you know, come in and, and talk much about what other Western countries have done. But I think that China is trying to juxtapose itself to what many people see as a, a failed approach to development um, from Western development institutions. Um, now, again, I'm not really the person to judge whether those institutions have been successful or not. But there is this perception that um, they haven't been as successful as they might have been or as they could have been, and that China has some answers. I do believe that when it comes to the issue of development, which is, um, an, in an economic sense, increasing the capital labor ratio, you know, more machines compared to people, that the Communist Party of China has done a pretty good job on that front, right? If the question is, have you increased the capital labor ratio, the answer is almost certainly yes. Um, and not only in terms of machines, but also in terms of human capital, um, the training of you know, engineers and even people with basic education in terms of bookkeeping and literacy. The Communist Party of China, I would think, is pretty high marks in those regards. And to the extent that it can take those kinds of lessons, particularly on the agricultural side, I would argue, and transmit them to developing countries, I think that there's a lot to be learned there. Um, you know, China's grain productivity um, soared during the 70s um, and 80s. And, you know, the, and that's the result of a lot of investment that they put into the agricultural sector. Um, many uh, developing countries still can't feed themselves. And it's very difficult to imagine a country that, can, that spends its money buying and importing grain, having enough left over to be able to develop. So there are a lot of lessons, I would say, that China can project. Perhaps it's not the ones that developing countries want to hear about. Uh, maybe they want to hear more about industrialization, and they're not as interested in agriculture. Um, but I do think that uh, China has, uh, you know, lessons up from its past that can be helpful. It's just a question of whether or not the countries it's engaging with want to learn those lessons and whether or not on the Chinese side they're, they're interested in transmitting those lessons. Because often there are lessons which aren't so sexy. They're not attractive in terms of they're not going to build you a city of Shanghai overnight. They're not going to give you that kind of glitzy veneer which is so attractive to many leaders in developing countries. But that glitzy veneer is really the product of a lot of investment in the countryside that occurred for decades prior to it. The question of whether or not these countries are willing to, to hear that lesson um, and whether or not China is willing to teach it, I think it's, it is a question right now um, that there remains unanswered. 
Well, we've been talking with Josh Eisenman, who's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Texas at Austin, and he is the co-editor of a forthcoming book called China Steps Out, Beijing's Major Power Engagement with the Developing World. Thanks so much for joining us, Josh. Thank you so much, Bonnie.